This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I took some this morning, and Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. This morning, I woke up, threw a scoop of Athletic Greens in a water bottle that I kept in the fridge all night, so it was nice and cold. I shook it up and sipped on that while I was making my coffee and it's super refreshing and I just love the flavor. There's some apple and some pear extracts in there along with some stevia to make it delicious but not too sweet and I really enjoy it. I look forward to it every morning just as much as my first cup of coffee. So why do I take Athletic Greens aside from it being refreshing and delicious? Well, I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it really gives you all of the micronutrients to meet your daily needs. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition. I mostly follow a paleo approach, but it's hard to eat perfectly all the time, especially when you live on the road and are traveling and climbing. I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that. So the thing I love about Athletic Greens is that when I take my one scoop in the morning, I know I'm covered. If you want to see what all the fuss is about, Athletic Greens is going to give you guys, listeners to this podcast, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tour of Lattice Training. And it's free. So you can download the app right now, try those out and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. Instead of the 75 workouts you get with the free version, you'll get access to over 200 workouts and progressions. Secondly, with Crimped Plus, you can create your own custom training plans right there in the app. And finally, with Crimped Plus, you'll unlock a collection of skill templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. Want to improve your finger strength or get more flexible or conquer one-arm pull-ups? Well, guess what? There is a skill template for each of those things, and it'll guide you through the entire process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com. That's C-R-I-M-P-D.com, or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store, and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own, has never been easier. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on, basically the who's who of high-performance rock climbing. They are all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting my fingers stronger, and I want to make sure I'm giving my body all of the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons. 
so I take it every day. I take at least one scoop a day and I usually take two scoops on training days. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Carol Simpson. Carol is a 77-year-old rock climber and Bikram yoga instructor from Lone Pine, California. As you guys know, if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, as much as I love talking about performance and training and getting better at rock climbing, I really love to explore different perspectives than my own and just learn from people's life stories. And this episode is a great example of that because when in life do you get to sit down and talk with a 77-year-old in your sport for hours and learn all about their life? So I really enjoyed this conversation. Carol is a delight to talk to. She has a very interesting life story and she's still climbing and she's still thriving and teaching yoga. She is still sharp as a tack mentally and I'm sure she has many, many years of adventure and climbing ahead of her. So I loved this conversation. She and I talked about what it was like growing up in the South in the 1950s as a girl who identified as a tomboy at the time. That's the language that she used, and she's since learned to reframe that and think of herself as an athlete rather than a tomboy. We talked about what it was like to feel pressure to be feminine as a teenager and what the culture around her was like, how the culture has changed over all these decades for women in general and also within climbing. We talked about embracing athletics in her 30s and discovering climbing at age 42. Carol started climbing at age 42. We talked about sending her first 512A at age 53. I love it. It's so cool. And we also talked about yoga, teaching yoga, and what she's seen it do for other people. She calls it the fountain of youth. She swears by it. And it was really interesting to hear about her own experience with yoga. We talked about her life partner of more than 30 years and how she continues to navigate that relationship and nurture it. And we talked about ageism in climbing, which was a very interesting conversation as well. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Carol Simpson. Well, Carol, it is so good to be here with you. I've been very excited for this. Um, I have a bunch of notes in front of me that I'm oh, excited to, to get to with you today. But first off, thank you for being here. It's great to see you. You're so welcome. Thank you. And as I said, I'm honored to be here talking with you. I think it'd be really fun to start with a day in the life a day in the life of Carol Simpson, if you could walk me oh, through <laughs> through a day right now. And I think it'd be really fun to contrast that with a day in the life of your childhood, um, taking us back to where you grew up and some of that. But let's start with where you're at today. Can you, you can use today as an example or just a typical day in the life, but I'd love to hear what your life looks like these days. Well, I don't think there's really a typical one, but today, for example, I'm going to 
teach a class because I have a yoga studio in Lone Pine. And I'm going to teach a class tonight at 5.15. And I need to go in and make sure the studio is cleaned up and there's no spiders and, you know, that kind of stuff. Clean windows, mirrors. I like to have it all nice and clean and then prepare for class. Um, I've been teaching this for so long that preparation is not as essential as it is when you do a, just a standard yoga class um, where you're actually changing the class every time. Whereas the, the Bikram yoga that I teach is the same set of postures each and every time. So, But I do like to read and find quotes and find things of interest for people. Uh, during the class. And uh, tomorrow, for example, is a climbing day with my women's climbing group that we're trying to get started in a city with a population of 2,000 people. It's a little challenging um, to find women climbers. Although we do have the Alabama Hills here. I think you said you never heard of that, but it's a climbing area that's three miles from us. And uh, every Wednesday we have the women's climbing group and we've had as much as four or five, as many as four or five women. And we've had as few as two, but we always try to make it go. And it's great. It's great. I've always loved climbing with other women because it's a totally different dynamic than mm. climbing with guys involved different not better or worse just different i love it so i i actually um after our first conversation i kind of put some pieces together and i've never climbed at the alabama hills but i think i do know where that is so you live in lone pine california and that's yes. near bishop california is that right it's an hour drive north to bishop got it okay so yeah i would and have driven we through bishop, we go to the gorge okay owens river gorge yeah yeah yeah, so I would have driven through that area going to like Death Valley to to Vegas for for yeah. example. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. right outside my kitchen window there is Mount Whitney. Oh, beautiful. Mount Langley, Mount Willie, all these great climbs. Williamson, I mean. <laughs> um all these great mountain climbs, which I'm not really into, but I think it's great. How long have you been there? Oh, let's see. Four year going on five years. Okay. Lived in Vegas before. Hated Vegas. <laughs> Sorry. Um, That's a big transition from Vegas to to a little town of two thousand people. And tell me California. about it. <laughs> but that reminds me of your. I was listening to Mina. It, that conversation you had was was so good because she was talking about chapters in people's lives and. You know, I love new chapters, uh, just always have. And I would just not, I, I would be very unhappy living in the same place my whole life, mm. I do believe. I just like to wander. All who wander are not lost, you know. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of um, the way I like it. And it's really cultural culturally a huge challenge to move to Lone Pine because there's 2,000 people here and it's of all things in California it's a little red 
pocket of conservative people. And that's different for me because I lived in Bend for so long, you know, which is a liberal um, a kind of community. And, and this is a, a very different thing. And it's kind of a low-income community, sadly, because the LADWP owns all of the they want the water rights to send all our water down to LA. Mm. So they own all this land around here. So it kind of landlocked and uh, yeah, there's not a lot of code enforcement, but I got to tell you, bottom line, the backyard is the most amazing place I've ever lived. So do you mean even you're more than bent? Do you mean your literal backyard or just what you have access to? No, I'm talking about those mountains out those there mountains that you can't see, but all I have to do is look over there and there they are. That's Mount Langley right right there. And it's breathtaking. Mm. And that's what people used to say when we lived in Bend. People would always go to Smith Rock and say, wow, it's this is breathtaking. It's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. Yes, it is. But after a while, it kind of, you kind of get apathetic about it. I don't know. Or you just, you're thinking about your project or whatever, and you're not really looking at the gorgeous beauty of it. Well, Carol, can you take us back? I would love to hear, first off, what year were you born? Um, that, that's something that what sets year? you apart from my other podcast guests. Yeah, um, it was almost 1945. <laughs> it was November of 1944 is when I was mm. born. And let's see. You, what year were you born, Stephen? 1989. Oh, stop it. <laughs> That's fine. My princess had a baby who was born May the 2nd, 2022. Try that one on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow. but uh, it's okay. I mean, I, you are what you are, and when you're alive, you got to live. And mm. I can't, you know, uh, no matter how much people try to remind me of how old I am, I guess the older I get, the easier I am with it. You go through a spell. A, you go through a spell in life at your, I guess, fifties or sixties. It's kind of transitioning into finally just saying, "Eh, well." I'm 77 and a half and proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I just love that. That gets to part of why I was so excited to talk to you. I'm just always so interested in perspectives that are really different than my own. Just getting these yeah. like really fascinating glimpses into someone else's life. And one of the notes I have in front of me that I'd love to hear about is your childhood and what it was like growing up in the South in the 50s. I mean, that's so different. I grew up in the in the early 2000s, I guess, 90s and early 2000s in the Pacific Northwest and just had, oh. I'm sure, a very different experience. Um, can you take us back to... Especially your, when you were, you were a male. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> a white heterosexual male, yeah. Yes. Growing up in the Northwest. <laughs> the vanishing species. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it was a trip. Let me tell you, in retrospect, um, I had a really happy childhood. 
I mean, I really did. I was fortunate in that I had a big brother who's three years older than me, and I was his buddy, and we ran around, climbed trees, played ball, followed sports. Uh, I was what they used to call a tomboy, and I was corrected by my granddaughter when I said I was a tomboy. She said, no, you were an athlete. Mm. And that's what she says about herself. She says, you know, she has a shirt that says, I'm not a tomboy, I'm an athlete. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? But yeah, I was a tomboy and I loved it and it was fabulous. And I had loving parents and I had, I mean, my parents were married 60 some odd years and uh, a mother that stayed home and took care of us. And I couldn't have asked for a happier childhood, I don't believe. Well, maybe, but you know, I was happy. And then I hit puberty <laughs> and things started changing for me. And I was kind of a late bloomer, so I was still building tree houses with my brother and playing in the, a swamp nearby. But we had a fort in a swamp near our house, and uh, we would go out there. It's a miracle we didn't get crushed and killed by it. It was just a bunch of logs stacked up on top of each other at the edge of a swamp. And I was doing that as four, you know, 14 years old. And then I started, and this was in the South, and it's really hard for somebody to visualize this unless you've lived it. But then um, I was kind of schooled that it's not feminine to run and play baseball. And I was pretty good at the baseball and the football. You know, I loved it. And um, I just started kind of transitioning there into trying to be a trying to be feminine because that was really important then and there and um I I can't exactly I do remember one story that kind of nails it is that I was playing a tossing a football with a friend of mine a guy and in the front yard and there were a bunch of girls my age sitting over on the next door porch and they started singing this song that and I will not torture you with my singing voice but <laughs> it went like this you gotta be a football hero to get along with the beautiful gals and that I remember to this day that's how much it impacted me hmm. and I just felt like oh, I don't get to do this anymore. I got to start being more feminine. Mm. And that, you know, even in high school, the, the girls that were jocks that played sports were never the popular girls. They were real strong, you know, they just weren't, they were not feminine. And so they were not popular or it sounds really trivial right now, but <laughs> this is when you're, you know, when you're growing up, this is how you, your perspective develops. And right. uh, so for so long, and I stopped being a tomboy, quote unquote, at about 14 and 
that's, I feel like I sort of suppressed my athletic needs for a long time. I got, I got married. I was born and raised to believe that women grew up, got married, had kids. And that was it. And that's why I'm pretty heavy on the feminism today. Because because I lived it and it wasn't, it just wasn't right. And I tried because I did want to please my parents. And I did please them. I got married at 19 to a guy I knew my dad would love and had two kids by the time I was 22. Wow. And yeah, that just sort of coincided with the second wave of feminism with Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, Marilyn French, all the writers, the the feminist women of those days saying, wait a minute, you don't have to do this. You don't have to live like this. You can have your own life, your own autonomy. You can go out, you can do what you want to do blah, blah. And um, I heard that. (laughs) I heard it. I was in the 60s. I was a young woman. Although I was a mother of two, I was still a young woman and college age, you know. And uh, just slowly, I mean, I left my, I took the kids, left my husband, went to Atlanta. I was living, um, we were living in Florida at the time because my husband at the time was transferred down to Tampa, Florida. And we lived there and it was, um, it was a total radical change for me. And I loved it. I loved it. Even though I had two kids to raise, I didn't, I was too young to realize the implications of that and the responsibility of that. And uh, gosh, I feel like I'm just going on, but I get, you'll stop me, I hope. I, because I'll go on all day. (laughs) I divorced him and then boom, on the rebound, married again. Mm. And I didn't really come to my senses until I was about 30, which I think is where our adult life begins, somewhere around there. I really do. Oh, I, I'm 32 and I think I completely agree with that. I mean, that's just my own, my own life experience, but I I feel like I finally started to understand what I liked, what I wanted to commit myself to, what felt important to me, what I wanted to spend my time doing, like in my very late twenties into my early thirties. And, um, I've, I've said that quite a number of times actually in the last couple of years that I feel like my life has just gotten started, which feels really exciting to me. And you're absolutely right. And my generation was, don't trust anyone over 30. <laughs> 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 and then that's just the tab and a conflict. Yeah, it's great that you understand that because that is absolutely true. Because I think when you're in your 20s, I mean, it's great. You're young and you're beautiful and you go around and you bump into walls and you just turn around and you just don't know what you want or where you want to go or like you said you what you the real meaning of your life what you want to achieve what you want to accomplish 
In your 20s, you're just kind of bumbling around trying to figure it out. And I was, I was going to tell you that story when I was divorced and moved from Florida up to Atlanta and applied. And this is going to be a real, I want the young women to hear this. I applied for, I, I, was, I had, had an apartment. I had a job. The kids were enrolled in a daycare. I wanted a car because I lived in Atlanta and you can't go anywhere in Atlanta without a car. And they wouldn't give me a loan at the bank because I had to have a man to sign the loan. And this is stuff I don't want young women or men or young men to lose track of because uh, this was reality. And my dad signed the loan, co-signed the loan for me and I got the loan. But I say that to young friends and that today and they're, they're just, they don't believe it. You know, it, it can't be. It was and it can be. So that's my take on that. But uh, back to your question. My childhood and ended up going all the way up to 30. So. <laughs> but I guess that was my childhood, right? Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question is, what did it look like for you to start your adult life at age 30? Was that like, was there a kind of a come to Jesus moment for lack of a, a better <laughs> phrase? Or, you know, did it all hit you at once? Like this clarity or? Um... Oh, no, it doesn't hit you at once. I don't think anything hits you at once in life, does it? it unless it's a um, traumatic experience. But um yeah, just over time, I realized that I wanted to go back and finish school. Really important to me because I had maybe a year of going to classes because I love learning and I was a good student when I was in school. So I wanted <clears throat> to go back to school to get my degree. That was my thing. Undergrad, which today is, you know, they're like, you got to get more than that. But Undergrad in that time was what you needed. And so I made up my mind. I wanted to do that. And I wanted, I did the athleticism thing. When I started realizing in my late 20s that that second marriage wasn't going to work out, I started playing tennis. And I got really good at tennis. I played a lot of tennis. It was kind of, I'm sort of OCD about things like that. I just want to do it all the time. I think a lot of climbers have that. Yeah. Initials right. next to their name. But <laughs> I uh, I loved that. But then I moved up to Washington, D.C. And it was a different climate. So it's much harder to play tennis up there. I didn't have any money. So I couldn't join some club. You know, so I started running. What else can you do? I mean, that is the way to go when you have little kids or young kids and you don't have a lot of money. I'd wake up at five in the morning, go out and run on the George Washington Parkway Trail, the bike trail there. And I would run while the kids were still in bed. And I'd be home by the time they woke up. And it was great. And I was 
I ran so much and it was in 10 Ks. I was never a long distance runner, but I loved the 10 K races and I loved to run on the down in Georgetown, the bike path okay. uh, down in Georgetown. And that was great. And I was getting that need that I have for movement and motion. Well, that's redundant, but doing the same thing, doing something that encouraged my athleticism, which I think lots of things stem from that. Hmm. If, if you're an athletic person, some people aren't, and they're gifted with brilliance and they, you know, they become neuroscientists. But I think for those of us who like to play and run and never grow out of it, that it's, it's, it's a good thing. But yeah, the running lasted for a while. And then I got into biking and I was cycling and I was cycling. Uh, did a bike trip from north uh, southern Virginia uh, Vermont to northern Vermont in October, which was a life highlight because the leaves were dazzling and incredible. Oh, wow. I don't know if you've ever been in the Northeast in the fall. I never have. It's it, cannot describe it. And people over in the West, over here, think that their leaves are gorgeous and beautiful when they <laughs> I'm telling you, it's great. Anyway, that was, uh, biking was for a while and I was still running. And then I started playing racquetball and I was just checking out all kinds of sports then. Mm. And I got into weightlifting. I later got my personal training certification I didn't like training people to lift weights because all the women came to me in in the at that time, ninety early nineties. They were um, they expected me to make them look great because I was their trainer, and they'd work. You know, when they were working with me, and then they go home and eat potato chips and <laughs> say, "Why don't I lose weight?" Yeah, yeah. So. But I'm crossing over here because, yeah, I've gone up into my 40s, so let's back up a little, I guess. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you more questions about like some of the, just kind of like the color of the time that you grew up in. I thought that was really interesting from our first conversation, and um, a bunch of questions that that come to mind just to paint a little bit more of a scene for oh, yeah. for myself. But you know, growing up, like what. I guess my questions are about the norms and the expectations for a teenage girl growing up when you grew up. Like that image that you painted of tossing the football and hearing those girls sing that song is beautiful, um, heart wrenching. Um, but yeah, like what what were you wearing? What did you like to wear? What did you feel like you had to wear? What was a teenage girl expected to spend her time doing? Teenage girls throughout my teenage years did not wear pants or jeans or it. I never wore jeans. You know, I mean, once I got to where I was supposed to be a girl, girly girl, I wore dresses. I wore 
I wore, wore those big skirts with crinolines under them. Do you even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. Where it looks like Scarlett O'Hara in a big giant. I don't know. I was jumping rope once when I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> I'll never forget this. I was jumping rope, and that's what girls did. We we could jump rope. That was fine. And I had this big elastic waist skirt on. It came to about my knees. And they wore these things called crinolines underneath that were big, puffy. Oh, God, it sounds ridiculous to describe it. They were big, puffy kind of slips. I don't know what mm. you call them. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can picture and that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I went, I jumped up. And when I jumped up, I jumped out of my skirt. <laughs> it was so embarrassing, but my skirt was on the ground and I was up there. But that's the kind of stuff we wore. And that's not exactly the proper attire for playing out on the playground. Later on, you know, as I got older, we would dress out for gym. We call it dressing out and uh, we put our gym clothes on. Thank goodness. I imagine that those norms that you grew up with, all those expectations put on you by your peers, it sounds like maybe your parents as well. I'm sure everyone around you. Well, they not intentionally. Right, not intentionally. The, yeah. That was just the norm of the time. And I'm sure that really permeates like your whole being as a person and in, in your psychology. What was it like to unlearn that and to start to believe that you could be an athlete and start running and start playing tennis and all these other things. Did you have to kind of like create a new identity for yourself or, or find like, where did you find the belief that you could now be that, that you could lean it, lean into that part of you as a, a young girl that wanted to be a tomboy and wanted to be an athlete? Such a great question because I came along when the norms were changing. I was on the cusp of the baby boomer generation, and I fully identify with that generation. Throughout that time, as I said, to the early 70s, women I respected were starting to change their ideas about the way society should be that's when i i was i could read i read the women's room by marilyn french which is for me it might if i read it again i'm not sure i'd like it but for me it was a turning point she was making these points that i was going yes yes i get it i get it you know and um that kind of support with with people writing things and the culture. I mean, it, you know, it, in your life, how much it's changed, I guess. Um, well, of course, I mean, I just feel like you're so young, but you still have seen changes in the culture uh, for women. You've seen a woman vice president, you know, you've now just about seen a black woman Supreme Court justice, you've seen these things and this is how they work. They just, they're slow. Like, like I tell my yoga students there, it's like grass growing. You can't really see it, but mm. when it's there, 
you understand it and it makes sense, right? But while it's growing, you can't really see it. And that's kind of where I'm getting at here, that it just happens over time. And I don't want it to, I've got daughters, I've got granddaughters, and, you know, I'm so happy. I had my granddaughter, who's the most amazing person, you know, that's the way we feel, right? And she, well, she got accepted into Berkeley this year, so I'm real proud of her for that, because that's a tough school to get into. She's super smart. She called me on Mother's Day, and we talked for an hour. And she's a young woman now, you know, and her attitudes are so great. You know, Mm. they're just so different than mine were at her age. And I'm so happy for her. And then my other granddaughter is down in an island off of the coast of um, Honduras, I think, or one of those places, Utila, getting her dive master certification. (laughs) So... (laughs) She, you know, I love it. I love it. It's the way the world is going. I hope. Mm. Lately, I don't know. I've been a little concerned. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's another thing about progress is that it's never linear. No, it's like five steps forward, a couple steps back. Exactly. It's like uh, climbing. You know, you go out and you're just having a great day and you're doing all this and that. And then you come back the next week and you get on something that you just cruised the week before and you're stumbling. But I think that's the great, one of the great things about climbing is the lessons, the life lessons we learn in this sport. I resonate with that very strongly. Oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah. (laughs) When did you discover climbing and how did you discover climbing? Oh, me. Well, I was on a chairlift at a ski area. Don't even remember which one. And back east where we ski ice. And that's how I learned (laughs) to ski. I learned to ski ice. I can't ski powder to save my life. But yeah, I was sitting there with a friend and he was a climber. And he said, he we were just chatting. He said he really liked climbing. He was a new friend. And I said, what's that? What's rock climbing? I had never heard of it. I was 42, I believe, at the time. And he told me about it. And I said, Ooh, it sounds good. I'd love to try it. So we went out and he set up a top rope at Great Falls, Virginia, which is where we used to climb all the time. It's outside of D.C. on the Potomac, and it was cool because all the kayakers were going by and the climbers, and it was a really sporty kind of area. And he set up a 5'9", and his uh, he had another friend there, Joe, and Joe tried the climb, and Joe was like, I don't know what they still call it, Elvis is in the building or sewing machine leg or whatever that his <laughs> yeah. legs were going like this the whole time. And he backed me. He said, um, I, I can't do any more lower me. And so he did. And then I got on it. And to my amazement, I did the climb. I wow. felt like I was shaking all over, you know, but I did the climb and I got to the top. And that 
right there was the most empowering feeling I've ever had before that mm. in my life. Just to be able to do that, you know, and I guess probably everyone that particularly women, because women are not normally encouraged to be powerful or to feel powerful. Mm. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was just what I needed to totally change my life. I mean, it was completely changed after that. Kept going climbing. Every chance I got, I was in the big city and doing presentations to architects and developers during the day. And then on the weekends, we'd drive to Seneca or the Gunks or the New River Gorge and go climbing. And we'd all pile in vans, you know, and drive six hours to climb for two days at the weekend, on the weekend, and then drive back. Just uh, crazy. But it was a ball. I mean, it was so much fun. We had the best group of people. And I recently, recently, a friend that was in that group posted a picture on Facebook about with all of us, our climbing group. And we had gotten this, I don't know, this isn't very good, but we got thrown out of a party. <laughs> Can you please tell me more? <laughs> <laughs> no, great, I mean, we great were all podcast content. rowdy and we were, we were thrown out of the party, which is really hard to do, I'm sure. But it was a picture of us on the stairs and we're all like three sheets to the wind, you know. And just big smiles on our faces. And we were so happy. But we just went around as a pack, you know, kind of a pack. And I was, there were two women, two women. And the rest were guys. My little friend, Millie, she was, we called her, she was a Puerto Rican. Millie Rosario. And she was the cutest thing you've ever seen. About five <laughs> feet tall, weighed less than 100 and could do fingertip pull-ups, you know. <laughs> I'm five, I was five nine at the time. I don't think I'm quite I'm five eight and a half now. But I was five nine and the total opposite. I mean, I'm pretty skinny, but I wasn't I have never been able to do a pull-up. <laughs> so well, anyway, the, that was us. I, I love it. I was I was just sitting here doing the math and just thinking like, because in our first conversation, we had talked about you discovering climbing in your early 40s and just going all in on it and doing the whole thing, traveling and pursuing climbing. And I was sitting here wondering how you were able to manage that with your kids. And then I realized like, oh, they were already in their 20s by then. You had two kids already in their 20s. So they must have been yes, out of the I house mean, living on their own. That my kids are in their 50s now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's exactly right. They were, I mean, it's funny because when my youngest daughter graduated from high school and went to California to go to school, most people, I mean, a lot of mommies especially get this empty nest syndrome thing. I never had that because we were busy planning our next trip and where we were going and <laughs> You know, actually, John and I both quit our jobs and 
I did this in my 40s, what a lot of people do in their 20s and 30s. Got in a van and took off. And I wrote an article, I think I told you in what used to be Rock and Ice, but it's now Climbing Magazine about that trip called Following the Sun. And I still have it, that article. And it's so funny for me to look back and read it. Will you send that to me? I looked for it and I couldn't find it. And I would oh. love to read it and share it with people. Oh, that would be fun. Um, but I mean, I only have the magazine. Yeah. Maybe you can take photos of it and we can. Okay. okay. Ho- hopefully that's legal to do. It's, I mean, it's old enough. Oh. I can't, I can't, I don't know. I wrote it. <laughs> there we go. It's my article. Okay, perfect. Yeah. That'd be yeah, amazing. And then I wrote another one that I don't. <laughs> have because it's in a box somewhere and we still have because we moved into a really tiny house and we still have boxes with no place to put the books but I wrote one in when I was working Latin Lover that was about I did a lot of research on um, older climbers climbers over 40 get it that was older in those days nowadays it's not so much, you know? And yeah, so I interviewed a bunch of people who are over 40 and they all had the same stories. It was funny. They all had basically the same nutrition, the same ideas on, on it. There wasn't a lot of training. I heard John Sherman say that to you. And it's so true. We didn't train to climb then. Um, Eric Hurst had a book called How to Climb 512. I remember that's one of the really early ones. And then Dale Goddard and Udo Newman had uh, a book. I I think performance climbing, performance rock climbing, maybe. Yes, that was it. Yeah. And that that was the first book that really got me as far as training. I thought it was really well done because Udo Newman was some big shot at some German. I've wandered off again and no, I, I love it. I let's. I do want to come back to. Um, w- w- let's make our way to Smith Rock and Latin Lover in a minute. But oh, okay. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. This will feel like a tangent at this point, but I'm really curious what you pursued as your career and why. Mm. I know that wasn't another area in which you were kind of like swimming against the current of your time, as far as like the norms and expectations and. Um, you mentioned giving presentations to architects, but what is it that you were interested in and decided to do for a career? Well, it's not, it's what happened was I started, <clears throat> I went to school and just did the liberal arts thing. I'm an artist and I wanted to study art. And as you know how it goes, I don't know if it went that way for you in college, but when you find something that kind of clicks with you. I was interested in art and then for practical purposes, since I had two kids to raise, I wanted to get into commercial art because you can't make much money being an artist unless, you know, unless you're one of the very, very best. And, you know, I'm just a sort of, I like to draw people with graphite people and dogs, (laughs) Uh, portraits, that's what I love. But um, 
as I was studying the arts, I sort of stumbled on interior design. And that's what I ended up uh, completing my interior design degree, but it was commercial design. I could never do residential design because people are, I mean, when you're working with a group of like developers who are and architects and people who are developing a large office building or a bank or whatever restaurant, the things that I did, you are not picking out lamps for somebody's living room. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to design, not decorate. So I started designing and I, I was working for a company that they did interior design. And I took, I literally stole their best client and went out on my own. Um, <laughs> this, this for people... <laughs> This for people who are having issues working for other people. I've been fired. I've been told I was worthless. I could, the whole time I was working for others, when I went out and started my own business, that's when I knew. And I was, you know, I was pretty successful actually in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and had clients that were back in the 80s were multimillionaires, which today they would be billionaires. And uh, they were developing and building properties and United Savings Bank was one of my biggest clients. And I would do the space, uh, space planning for their building. Like they would give me the footprint of the building and me, not just me, my, I had an architect that worked with me. And um, we would, somebody has to do the lighting plan. Not every, You don't think about it when you go into a building so much, but somebody has to say, this is going to be the CEO's office. This will be the conference room and lay it all out and make sure it all works. And that was great. I love that. It was also empowering. Um, to be walking, you know, going in, walking around in downtown DC with my big portfolio to a presentation. Uh, it was great. And then I started, I started rock lining and I come into presentations with scars, scabs. <laughs> this. I have to wear long sleeve shirts in the summer. Um, you know, crazy stuff like that. Uh, it was just kind of a mixture of my desire to play outside and my desire to uh, be involved in the the excitement of the big city. And that was the time in my life when I really thrived on that. I really loved the excitement of of that being important to people and being recognized by people for my work. Yeah, that thing with this, this thing was when I was first climbing, I was belaying a friend who was climbing a 12. And I wasn't aware that you, 
you can't stand back too far when you're belaying a leader. And this was in the days of ATCs and maybe figure eights. I don't, anyway, I was belaying him and he fell and I got just 30 feet, boom, into the rock. And I did not let go of the brake. I can tell you that. But I got my arm scabbed all the way from the wrist to the elbows. <laughs> did you tell your coworkers, your peers, your clients that you were a rock climber? Did people think you were crazy? Well, the funny thing, well, everybody thought I was crazy. Um, everybody I knew. <laughs> can you, lab- my can you elaborate that on, on, on that a little bit just because of the rock climbing thing? or? Well, the, the, the story that uh, I think about is... Uh, there was a guy, he was, I don't remember his position, but he was some big shot It that we used to see it in presentations. He was involved in everything. And presentations being, you, everybody works on their assorted parts of a, of a, say, a huge building. Everybody has their stuff that they work on. Then you all come together in a big conference room and present one by one, your input to the big multi-million dollar dude who makes all the decisions. Um, but anyway, there was a guy that was involved there and he he came into a, a meeting and said, I went rock climbing this weekend. And I thought, ooh, that's interesting. He didn't look much like a climber, you know. You know how you can kind of tell climbers by the way they look? You go in a grocery store and you go, oh, they're climbers. <laughs> that's what that's what we do in Bishop. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We go into Vons and go, oh, there, there's some climbers there. But he didn't. And he was found the next weekend or so, he was out there again. And he was taking lessons at Seneca to learn to rock climb. And there was a fourth class approach to get to a lot of the climbs there and he was in this group of people that were all roped up and belaying each other up the fourth class part and my partner and I just scrambled past them you know as they were doing with all their their stuff and yeah so after that you know everybody would give me a hard time about being a mountain goat and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and yeah, I think that might have been kind of like the dawn of when people were starting to realize that that uh, doing things like that are really exciting and important. And there's lots of the. Okay, here's another story. Um, my partner John was working as a guide for our guide service and Arthur Solzberger Jr., who is the son of the original owner of the New York Times, called and wanted to go up the monkey face. He wanted to guide, guided, climb up the monkey face. And that's probably one of the most important people ever in this country, in the newspaper business anyway. And here he is climbing up the monkey face with John and doing the A ladder. And, it, you know, it, it just became more like everything else, just a part of our culture. 
um, yeah, he's, and John loved it, of course. John, absolutely, he's really smart. Got to give him credit for that. And he and Arthur had some, well, it's interesting because John is extremely conservative. And, of course, Arthur Salzberger Jr. is the New York Times guy. And I would <laughs> love to have heard some of their conversation. <laughs> but I didn't get in on that. Tell me, um, Carol, Tell me about John. You've mentioned John a couple times now. Um, people, oh. I'm sure, have picked up that he's your your partner. But you you introduced John to me just through your email um, as the love of your life and your life and climbing partner of 33 years. Can you tell me more about John? When I met him, he was 23, right out of college. And, of course, I was in my early 40s. So, but yet he didn't know that I was that old. I don't think I'm that old. He told me I didn't anyway. And I didn't realize how <laughs> young he was. And we were climbing partners. I mean, we started climbing together. He was my climbing partner, nothing more. And yeah, I mean, we'd all go to our little pack that we used to run with back in D.C., We'd go get a motel room and we'd all stay in one room because it was much cheaper. And uh, I, I actually slept on the same bed with him, you know, but we were just buddies and it, we became more than buddies and we've been together. I mean, we met climbing. I met him out at Great Falls. He had just moved from Texas to Great Falls, and he was an engineer, young engineer, working on uh, with a road crew, building roads. And we just climbed together. We climbed, we, every time we went on vacation, it was a climbing vacation. And it's always been that way. It's never changed. We're still that way. I don't want to go, go on a vacation to the beach. There's no rocks. I mean, and my family thinks I'm nuts, you know. Um, but why would I want to go on a vacation somewhere where there's no climbing? Am I completely nuts? I don't, do you not understand to, that? Not at to all? every yeah, you're not nuts to every single person listening to this podcast right now. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and we've been to France twice. We we love France. We been to Italy, we've been to China, we've been to Thailand, we, we've been all over the world climbing. And, and then the next trip I want to do is Kalemnos in Greece. I really want to go there. So I've heard it's very user-friendly and it's not necessarily hardcore. There's moderates and mm. that kind of stuff. So yeah. I'm excited about that. But yeah, we, I don't know how we get along, but we do. I mean, <laughs> and a lot of times we don't, but we work it out. You know, we just, mm. he is like, I think I told you before, he's a Texas conservative Republican. And I'm a, but neither of us are extremist on the right or the left. And I'm very liberal. And we, just don't talk about it because we just 
that works for us. You know, uh, you can't help but comment on things once in a while, but we've just always managed not to make it a, a an issue between us. We just deal with it. Mm. I, I just feel bad for him because he can't see the light and he sees me in the same vein. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but he's the guy, the one guy, I mean, that I can be, I don't know if you've ever read Sam Harris or know who Sam Harris is, but yeah, I do. Big, oh, you do? Yeah, oh, I've, I've listened to a lot of, of okay, great. Yeah. I listened to a lot of his podcast. Oh, really? Oh, mm -hmm. he's so brilliant and so, so insightful. And he wrote a book called Lying that I want to recommend for anyone and everyone in a relationship. Um, it's not about relationships. It's about the fact that people are so willing to lie. Uh, for example, does this dress make me look fat, honey? You know, um, and his way of saying, like, I, have to, I don't know how he says it. He has a way of saying things that are so brilliant. But instead of saying, uh, yes, that does make you look fat, because that wouldn't score points with your partner, you would say, you are so, you look so great. That dress just doesn't do it for you. The dress doesn't work for you. You mm. Your that dress is not worthy of you, or something like that, just to be honest about it rather than mm. the lie, uh, you know. And I've been trying that because I think we all do that. I know I do with people, but with John, and maybe are you in a relationship? Or um, you've been recently, yeah, maybe the early stages of one actually, but I haven't oh, really? talked about that. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. But that person has to be the person you can be perfectly honest with, whether it's going to be accepted or not, or whether it's going to be well taken or not. It's just the way you sandwich it, the way you say it, um, that's important, you know, John and I say things to each other that I would never say to somebody else, but he knows, I mean, it, it just, and maybe that's the way long-term relationships are with people. I never got along. I mean, I, I was married six years, both times. <laughs> that was my limit six years. And I was bit off, spit out of it. But yeah, I think it, it evolves to that point. Um, but every time we've gone on vacation, every time we've done in, anything together, it's always been to climb. When we went to China. That was one of my favorite. We went backpacking around Southeast Asia for six months. Um, I was in my 60s. I wasn't any kid. And we had the best time. Yang Shuo is hands down the best climbing area I've ever been to in my life in China. If you ever get a chance to go there, I don't, Wow. you know, things aren't quite as the same as they were 10 years ago, as far as relations with countries, but we found the Chinese people to be truly amazing. It's very inexpensive to go there. You ride your bike everywhere. And the, 
people will get behind you when you're riding your bike and they'll kind of tap their horn and that's to let you know they got your back. Oh, wow. It's just, I've never experienced anything like it. Just trucks <laughs> will come behind you and they'll tap, 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 tap. It, it was great. Different culture. Uh, but there's just massive amounts of climbing there. Mm. I'm off on climbing again. And then Lao <laughs> um, was also one of my favorite places. Takek. Have you ever heard of Takek? No, I haven't. Lao. It's a big climbing area that was established a while back. And when we went there, there were barely any people there. And now there's cabins. There's there's just all kinds of people there now. Mm. So it's changed a lot. Can I ask you another question about John? Please. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. I told you, you I get on tangents. <laughs> well, it is a climbing podcast, so you're, you're definitely allowed to make climbing tangents. Okay. Um, <laughs> and you, you kind of answered this already just in saying that you, you guys just don't talk about it. You, you just choose to um, not let it be a big issue. But I, I am so fascinated with that core difference in your personality because I, yeah. it's just, I mean, maybe it makes more sense actually um, that you guys are able to make that work coming from the times in which you two met, but I just, it's so hard to imagine now, you know, take a oh, conservative yeah. now and a liberal now, put them together. And I can't yes. imagine that they're going to make it through the first date. So I, I have to imagine that you have a lot of wisdom and insights ab about just navigating um, disagreements, differences between you and your partner. And if you have anything that comes to mind that you could share um, that people, young people, um, people who are thinking about dating and relationships or or they have a partner of many years and um, there's always been friction around, you know, certain things. Anything that you could share, I think would be would be great. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, I'd say that you're so right on when you talk about the times because it's a different time now in terms of political issues than it was and I voted for Ronald Reagan you know I'm not uh, it, I don't think I'm extreme one way or the other and I don't think he is either but today it has just become it's almost like I wouldn't recommend it today <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, because it's just gotten so bad. And now, I mean, it's even coming up a little with us with this, this uh, Roe v. Wade thing, because I'm, you know, I don't, this is a climbing podcast, but yeah, he, he says it's state rights, and I say it's women's rights. And we have had a couple of words about that. Mm. I say it's women's rights to autonomy for her own body. I say, what the hell happens to the guy that got her pregnant? That's yeah. always my question, you know? Um, and that that's kind of an issue because he thinks he's conservative and he believes in state right, states' rights. And yeah, it, 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 I don't even know if, we, if I need to get on that. I don't know if people would be interested in that. You do, but I... Well, I guess, like, how just as far as um, 
continuing to care for your partner, you know, who you love so much, when a disagreement like that comes up, how do you navigate that? I just uh, stick, I just make my case, you know, and he makes his case and it usually ends up with something like, well, I guess we just have to agree to disagree. Mm. And, you know, but John is a very rational person. He's extremely rational and down to earth and math. He's, I think of him as math, whereas I'm the art with the right brain. He's the left brain. And I nicknamed him Spock because he is, <laughs> remember Star Trek at all? Yeah, yeah. He has no emotions. No, we laugh because he, <laughs> my grandson said, don't hurt his feelings. Singular. And that's another thing, humor. Oh my gosh. Hmm. You got to have it. If you don't have humor, if you can't make somebody laugh, and he's just, he has this way of being so silly that I start, I can't stop laughing because I love that body, bodily silly humor. I love it. I've always, always loved it. Um, I am not, he's not into sarcasm and, you know, who would be the sarcastic person today that used to be Woody Allen? Um, you know, that kind of sort like of dry your, wit. Um, just cutting, biting, okay. sharp, quick wit, yet uh, sarcasm. More cynical humor. Cynical. That's the word. That's yeah. it. Perfect. And I've got that and he doesn't get it. Like he hates Larry David. And okay. <laughs> <I> love it. <laughs> and my friend Blair, who's 39. And I both love Larry David, and we're always talking about it, and curb, curb your enthusiasm and cracking up, and John just rolls his eyes, you know, like he's, he just doesn't get it. But he was raised in Texas. It's a different thing, but we do come together on certain parts of the sense of humor, certain styles of humor. How do you think you guys complement one another? What are some of your favorite things about John? Oh, he's so smart. I mean, I think I'm smart too, but in a different way. He's mathematically start smart. He reads calculus books for leisure in his leisure time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he's just a math guy. And he's great to have around because I don't need a computer. I just ask him, what should the tip be here? And he says, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I think he enjoy. and I have to project here. I think he likes my creativity, hmm. um, which includes, I guess, my entrepreneurial personality appeals to him because he, I don't think he was ever exposed to that. And ever since I became an entrepreneur at, in 1985, I've done nothing but start businesses because I started my design business. And then I started, when we moved to Bend, we bought Red Point. And I started First Ascent. And then we moved here and I opened a yoga studio. And that's that makes me happy. And I think he respects that. He works for the county. But he has a good job. He gets paid good money. 
but, but I couldn't work for the county if my life depended on it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you'll, if this makes sense to you, but Lyndon Johnson used to say it's better to pee from the inside of the tent out than to pee from the outside of the tent in. And so <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> Please elaborate. Is, he's peeing from the inside out. He's trying to take care of all this stuff internally as okay. a part of the system, you know. Got it. Not everybody okay. gets that joke. I think you had to know who you had to understand Lyndon Johnson, I guess. Anyway. And I voted for, guess what? My first president I voted for, I just made up that question for myself. Lyndon Johnson, that's how old I am. <laughs> Grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> but I did vote for Lyndon Johnson and not Barry Goldwater. Anyway. Are you and John still primary climbing partners? Oh, yes. I'd love to ask you about that as well. How... Or, or what advice would you have for everyone listening when it comes to maintaining a healthy and rich climbing partnership with your climbing partner? Oh, boy. Oh. I would say, and I've seen it all, and you probably have too, guys who climb and their, their wives or girlfriends don't, and then women who climb and their boyfriends don't unless you're a special kind of couple I don't know that that's that's going to be a hard one mm. um, for us we at the time I met him I could lead I was leading harder cracks than he could lead he would lead harder sport than me yeah so we were kind of even and that was ideal but the big test for us has been in 2012, when I started not feeling well, and it was, you know, I think once you're over 70, you're going to have something. Something's going to happen to you, right? It just is. Uh, and for me, it was a heart rhythm issue. And not a, not clogged arteries. I've always, I was a vegetarian since 1980. It's rhythm, you know. And that set me back big time and then like I said that was one thing after another concussion and then the the COVID and all this stuff it was years and I lost a lot and you you yourself if you were out for that long you would lose an enormous amount of muscle and endurance and you'd lose it imagine in your late 60s it happening but the thing is John said that Mark Twight had made the comment that you can't get off of the bus. Because once you get off the bus, it's almost impossible to get back on. And I never got off the bus. because, And you've got to stay on it. I mean, metaphorically, got to stay on the bus. So I've managed to, during this whole actually nine years that I've not been able to regularly climb, I get out and try. I've been trying. I get out and I try to hike and I try to practice yoga and do the things that I love. I've never really actually let go of that. I'm still hanging onto the back handle of that bus, you know. And now that I feel great again, thanks to modern medicine, 
I'm back on that bus big time. And I'm climbing two, three days a week. Easy. And uh, life's kind of a battlefield in a way. <laughs> you know? Or it's a road under construction. I like that. I think that's a better analogy than battlefield. It's a road under construction. And sometimes I, I mean, I got this, I didn't just get a pothole. I got a wash out of the road, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. But I just couldn't let go. I couldn't let go. And I thank my ancestors or whoever gave me their DNA to have that element in me. And I think that most rock climbers have that in them. Mm. Red Becky is a perfect example. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He was climbing, what, into his 90s? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Will you tell me about Latin Lover? You mentioned Latin Lover. Um, you mentioned Monkey Face. You mentioned Red Point Fort Climbing. <clears throat> Fort Lee's Revenge. So this is all Smith Rock, and I, I know all that because I lived there for so long. But right. Latin Lover, <clears throat> I'll let you describe that one. But Monkey Face is a really famous feature on the backside of Smith Rock for people listening. And then you and John moved to Bend and you bought the little climbing shop right outside of Smith and Terrebonne red, called... It was a little red shop. Then. A little red shop called Red Point Do you remember climbing. that? Um, pictures I, of it, I mean? Not. Yeah, I don't think I... I don't know if I have seen the original photos. That'd be, that'd be great. It was a teeny little to. red shack in Terrebonne, right at the intersection where you turn off the highway onto the... to go to the park. And people came from all over the world in those days to climb at Smith these days, it's not steep enough for people. So, but they still come to mm -hmm. Smith. And uh, yeah, I, we bought Red Point, and then we finally ended up. They wanted to get rid of it, the building, and so the Bill Jordan, the realtor there, built a building, and we bought part of the building for the shop. And it was so cool because we had the, the door, the original door up on the wall, like a piece of art, you know, giant high ceiling. Mm -hmm. And we just, it was fun. We had so many really cool people come, Tommy and Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rodden, and uh, Scott, what was his name? Oh, gosh. Scott Franklin. Scott Milton. Oh, Milton. Would, yep. You remember him? He's still yeah. around? Oh, okay. I haven't I haven't met him, but yeah, he's I know his name well. He's yeah, he used to come to Smith all the time at climb at Agro. I did a climb. I red pointed a climb in Agro Gully. <laughs> Toxic. That <laughs> Toxic. was the warm-up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was hard. It was a steep, burly short eleven B. Yeah. Yep. But I yeah. Um Okay, put me back on track here. Where Latin Lover. Oh, Latin Lover. Oh, I loved that climb. Um, I got on it and at first on top rope, of course, and just just worked it. And then I started working it on lead. And my belayer, Tom Broxon, I'll never forget Tom. He was the one that worked it with me. Uh, he didn't work it. He He could do it. He was super strong and then I I fell 
I would, first time I started leading, I fell, I don't know, you probably don't remember the details of the the route, but it's a pretty good fall um, going to uh, the second to the last fold. I don't remember. Anyway, um, but I did. And the day that I read pointed, I remember walking down the, you know how you go down into Smith and I was talking with Tom and he said, how are you feeling today? And I said, I'm feeling terrified. And at the same time, I'm feeling elated. I mean, it's just impossible to describe as I'm sure you know, in any any climb you're trying to red point, you dread it and you can't wait. You know, <laughs> it's like these this yeah. thing going tug of war in your brain. And uh, the day that I finally, I okay, I would get to the last bolt and I would have to hang because I'd be just wiped out. I did that a couple of times, and then the time I red pointed it, we went down in there, and there was a woman on. I can't remember the 12A that's directly behind Latin Lover. There's another 12A back there. Uh, and she she was on that and she was a she was in the mags. You know, she was a pretty well-known climber. I don't even remember who it was, but take a powder, um, maybe. Take a powder, that's it. <laughs> Yay. And love it. She I was so I was like, oh my God. She's here. She's going to have to, I'm going to have to do this with her watching me. And I was so, it just added another dimension to the climb that made it more challenging. That mental one, you know, like somebody is watching me, somebody who is really, really good climber. And I went up and got to the last bowl where I usually hang and I down climbed maybe one move. And got a little shake. A little shake makes so much difference, as you know. And then I, I did it. And I heard her say, good job. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 53. I wasn't that old. But <laughs> I felt I like I was. It. I love it. Um yeah, your first 512A at age 53. Yeah, Amazing. that's when I wrote that article and decided to interview people all the way up to Richard Hechtel, who was 84. And he said to me, I don't lead anymore, but I'll follow, because he was down in Southern Cal. I'll follow, have you climbed at Josh? I haven't, I've never been to Joshua Tree. Oh. He said, I'll follow Illusion Dweller or, or, you know, well, just ask somebody that's done Illusion Dweller. It's a 10B crack, but it is super sustained and hard. He's 84. And, you know, if I can do that or even more, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm in another generation. So, you know, that's what I was saying to you earlier. Your generation, oh, my God, imagine. But even the generation of my children, which is Gen X, Bobby Bensman, Lynn Hill, all these people, they're going to be pushing the limits. And that's why I want to keep, that's part of the reason. I mean, it's definitely 
my own desires, but I want to keep pushing the grades and the limits as long as I physically can, as long as it makes me feel better, you know, and great. Why shouldn't I? Because you still get the same endorphins and the same feeling of um, just empowerment when you red point a climb or do it or on site or anything, you know, anything, just climbing. Mm-hmm. So Bobby Bensman is what, 58, 513 she climbs. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean about every generation pushing yeah. the limits, the limits, which I love that word because limits are there to be, have the, their butt kicked, I'm saying, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'd love to ask you from that article that you wrote so many years ago about aging and climbing, and then also just from your life experience, so many years climbing since then, and coming back to climbing in your 70s after that forced time off. Um, that's a really good lead-in. This is a question that I have from my friend Taylor. I, I reached out to her and asked if she had questions for you. Oh, and she cool. she wanted to know, what are the things when it comes to aging as an athlete that people don't think about? Okay, here's something this morning, your conversation this morning that I listened to uh, talking about rest days. <laughs> That's a big one. And you guys, young, he's doing 515. He was saying after really working hard on a red point or something, he likes two days off. Two days off are ideal. Imagine if you were 77 years old. <laughs> I, so I can't. I can try. I absolutely need two days off. Well, I'm telling you. Yeah. You, need, you absolutely need two days off from a hard climbing day. And three is even better. So for me, the, the rest, you have to rest more. You have to take more time off. You have to be more disciplined in that respect. Number one, the resting. You're not going to have the endurance that you once had. Nobody does. You don't have the endurance you had when you were 18, but you it's don't true. feel like you lack endurance, right? You still, we're still the same people inside. We change physically, but we still have the same minds. And um, I feel fortunate that I, my mind, it just, doesn't want to quit it wants to keep going and keep pushing and keep doing and then it gets slammed down i get that sometimes it gets slammed down but you can't get off the bus mm. and you can tell her you know the other thing is in four letters y-o-g-a i told you that every climber needs to practice yoga and I don't mean stretching because yoga is not stretching I always say it, it's like an insurance policy you know um, to ensure your health because endurance strength power all the flexibility and being able to move to articulate your joints is so crucial I get people in the studio that are 20 years younger than I am and they are they're stiff already you know mm. your spine starts to stiffen when you're old maybe like 30 35 years old it starts to stiffen 
And the only thing that's going to keep it from stiffing is stiffening is movement. Um, and I don't mean just walking. That's great. But when's the last time you did a back bend? Most people, if you ask them that question, unless they practice yoga, they'll say, hmm, don't do many back bends. Yeah. But your spine was designed to move six ways, backward, forward, laterally right, laterally left, twist to the left, twist to the right. And those are all the components of the crucial spine, which is what keeps you young. And the yogis say you are as young as your spine is flexible. Because mm. you see people in their 20s that have fused spines, it looks like. They're so stiff. And especially today with the, I, I'm not going to bash millennials because I love millennials, with the phones constantly and you get the forward head syndrome. That's not good. That's your spine. Mm-hmm. You know, the cervical mm-hmm. thoracic spine there. You're, so I would say yoga, tell Taylor, if she's not already practicing yoga, to sign up. Or these days, you can do it to YouTube. There's some great teachers on YouTube. I think you're telling her right now. So there we go. I'm telling her, Taylor, do it. <laughs> and I, when I see people, when I see, you know, I always want to go tell them, but I don't. When you see people stretching in the morning, you know, to get up, they're going to go climbing. It's You're in the valley. It's cold. And they're stretching. And that's just really asking for it because and you'll get away with it when you're young, but it builds and you want to practice yoga in a warm room. It doesn't have to be hot. Oh my God, the Bikram stuff is so ridiculously hot that I think that's part of the reason my I got my heart got out of whack with the beats. Is Interesting. Being, yeah, because I was in the yoga training nine weeks. And I was 64, nine weeks, two hour, two one and a half hour classes a day. Oh it gosh. was 130 degrees. The humidity was off the charts. It was Acapulco in the rainy season in a basement. And they were carrying out able-bodied, fit, 20-something-year-old guys and that's just sick. That's ridiculous. And I don't do it. My studio doesn't, I do not ever have it that stupid hot. It's not healthy. It's just Americans the way we are. You know, it starts in, in India and the guy who created the yoga, it's because in India it's hot and humid. So it was, (laughs) they don't have air conditioning. (laughs) And so it was fine. And then you bring it over here and you know, typical Westerners, if it if hot, if some heat is good, then more is better. And now you go to a Navy SEAL boot camp sometimes and it's 120 degrees. That's asking for problems. So that's controversial for anyone who practices yoga. But I just chose to start my own studio and do it the way I want to do it, which is warm and cozy and good for your joints, but still challenging. I would love to hear more about that because it sounds like from our last conversation that you credit yoga almost singly. I mean, you, you, do, you do other things as well, but that's 
I think you told me that yoga has allowed you to still be a climber. Absolutely. And I, I absolutely agree with that statement. The only reason I'm a climber at 77 is because I practiced yoga regularly since the early 90s, off and on before that. My first yoga class was in 1968. Um, but I was raising kids and doing all that. And so I started in the early 90s practicing Ashtanga yoga, which is a fantastic type of yoga. But I was climbing a lot. And Ashtanga is very challenging on your shoulders, your upper body. If you've never seen that practice, I loved it. But I couldn't do that and climb. It was just too much. Maybe if you're in your 20s, you can. But I can attest to the fact that it's really hard in your 50s. So that's why I like uh, the Bikram yoga, because it's not so upper body oriented. It's a lot about balance, a lot about strength, but not upper body. So I get my upper body workout climbing. Actually, climbing works the whole body. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. Then in my yoga, I get the balance. The balance, you know, that's something we lose as we get older. Uh, if you don't believe it, ask your mother to stand on one leg and count how long she lasts, or he, or your dad, or who, or a, an older person, and then ask them to close their eyes mm. and see how long they can stay. You can even ask young people this. Sometimes they can't. They'll just topple over. You know. And balance is pretty important for climbing. Yeah. It's a different kind of balance. It's on our side of a rock, but still it's that vestibular part of your your brain that uh, works that. And yeah, um, that's it. I mean, I'm a yoga fanatic. I can tell you that. <laughs> yoga climbing. If I had to give up one, though, I'd give up yoga. Really? But I don't have to give up one. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I mean, there's such a compliment and, uh, it's interesting yes. when you first, when you said balance, I mean, of, of course, like actually learning how to balance your body in, in three-dimensional space. But what I thought you meant by that when you first said it was just balancing out your muscles, your body, um, that with too. all this, all this pulling that we do with climbing yoga is such a great opposition to all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. What does your yoga practice look like these days? Well, since I've been climbing, I haven't been able to practice the Bikram as much, maybe once or twice a week, which is not enough. But but yin yoga is something I can do every day, and I do. It's a it's fabulous too. Um, it's the long held, becoming very popular lately because of because of, you know, the yin and the yang, Chinese medicine theory. Our, our lives are yang, especially climbers. We're yang all day long. That's the, the energy, the sun, the, everything, you know, fire. But the yin is the balance. The yin and the yang, the balance of nature. So if you have too much yang, you know, it's sooner or later it's going to pop. If you've got yin involved, you yin also relaxes you. 
It's helped me so much with this anxiety I've had since the COVID. I say I'm the most anxious yoga teacher that you'll ever meet, but I was suffering. I mean, I was suffering from anxiety. Meditation, meditation, it didn't work. I tried so much, it just didn't. And I was on Xanax and that worked great, but I don't like to be on medication. So the yin, you're in a posture that's extremely challenging as far as you can go into it, right? To your edge, and then you hold it for three to five minutes. And during that time that you're holding it, you will be, you use your breath work to deepen the stretch and open the fascia and all the tightness that accumulates in all your joints. And think about how good that is for your climbing. I mean, this fascia that surrounds the joints, you know, it start, it stiffens, it stiffens and hardens over time. So where are you right now? Are you somewhere where you can go sign up for a yoga class? Because <laughs> I want to have talked you into it. Yeah, I think you have. Um, okay. Yeah. Try the yen. Where are you in Utah still? No, I'm I'm back in Washington. I'm actually sitting in my parents' oh. driveway right oh, now in my nice. in my van. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I I know there's definitely a yoga studio in town. So and I'll be oh, here for a little while. So. Yeah, you um, should you should try it. I I have problems getting men to come into the yoga studio. I don't know why, because in the bigger cities, there's lots of men that do it. Yeah. Especially the beef room, the hard one. Um, but here in Lone Pine, which is kind of like back in the, I wouldn't go 60s, maybe 70s, um, like you have to go to the post office to pick up your meal. You have to go to the bank to make a deposit, you know, it's Mayberry RFD, just really not current. And uh, the guys here still have this, this idea about yoga where, and, and I always like to say, and it's true that yoga, women were not allowed to do yoga, to practice yoga in India, you know, not maybe, I'm sure they are now. But in the day, back in the day, women couldn't even practice. They're not, they weren't allowed to. So what's the thing about men not coming to yoga, you know? <laughs> yeah, why is it taboo? Yeah. I have a 70-year-old guy that, comes, that started coming a couple of years ago before COVID. And you would not believe the improvement in his... It just, this is why I do this stuff for guys like Bob, because he came in all stiff and cripple and oh my god just a mess he couldn't balance or i don't know i'll get bleeped but worth blank and <laughs> you can he, curse it's fine oh that's right i heard <laughs> <laughs> i heard your podcast this morning and he, joe said fuck i think but anyway <laughs> um bob comes in and he's holding on to the wall again and he comes every tuesday and every thursday and you would not believe that man I wish that I, I, I got a before picture of him. So I, I'm waiting for the perfect after picture. Of him. <laughs> I love because that. his life has changed. I mean, he says, you've changed my life and mm. how, how powerful, how 
incredible is that, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's that's awesome. I I would love to hear from your perspective with him as a, I think that's a great example. Like what is the time commitment? Cuz I I don't have any issue with the I don't know, like with the I don't I don't think there's a taboo thing or a stigma or or whatever. Oh, I, I, I know. feel you know, as a college student, I took a yoga class and totally loved it and I've just kind of fallen away from it because of time. What do you think is how much of a time commitment would you recommend for someone like this gentleman who you're talking about, who has a lot of progress to be made? Um, yeah, yeah. Ideally, ideally too much more than he's going to want to. Well, more than I teach. I don't teach every day. Um, I've been, I've had restrictions because of COVID. So I've just been limiting it to a few classes a week and that's really not enough. One class a week, you can maintain. Two classes a week, you can see a little improvement. Three or more, and then you're going to see rapid improvement. Uh, you know, like everything else, like even climbing. I mean, I've seen since I've been out, actually, January the 24th of this year was the first time I really started getting out climbing and feeling really good. And... um you know, you just you just feel in the beginning you feel a huge difference because I was I had backed off a five six. I mean, that's where I was, you know, and that's it's kind of funny, really. But and then I'd get on a climb that was supposed to be five eight, and I'd be like, "This isn't five eight. This sucks. This is hot. you know," and cuss and scream. And then I got back on it like last weekend and. It's a five eight. It was easy, <laughs> but that's because I've been climbing, mm. and now I'm pushing my grade and trying to work my way back up to wherever I end up. It doesn't matter as long as I keep improving. Mm. Uh, but Bob, I, if he could come four or five days a week, he would physically lose twenty thirty years. Wow. I mean, it is honest to God. It is the fountain of youth in terms of comparing people of certain ages you know somebody 70 i see people that are 70 and i'm speechless because i want to help them i want to take them and get them enrolled in yoga and show them rock climbing and how cool it is and that they can do it because that's just it i mean people try to tell you and i hate to say i mean this is a youth culture these days or a youth uh, infatuated with youth you guys and me when i was young just don't want it to happen it's like the who had a song like hope i die before i get old you know mm. it was the who yeah and you know i'm old but i'm glad i'm not dead because i'm still having fun and i'm still living <laughs> And life is great, you know. I love that. Because I feel good. And that's, yeah. that's it. You got to take care of your health. You got to start when you're young. Don't wait and just suddenly say, oh, I've got to start eating right, sleeping and exercising because I'm 50. Well, you know, that's that's better than nothing. But start when you're young. You know that, obviously. And everybody really needs to know that. But 
The other question, and conversely, I think, what if I'd start started climbing as a teenager? I don't know. I might have worn myself out by now. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm kind of lucky that I didn't start till 40-something because I was never going to be working 515s. But when I was working 512, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, back then, in the early Still 90s. Is. Well, people warm up on 12s now. Yeah, some do, but I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people listening to this that would still be that would still feel like a very big deal to them. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was. Well, Carol, I have a few more um, bullet points here that I want to make sure we get to if we can. But I want to check in with you really, really quickly because I know you have to teach yoga later. Oh, not till um, five fifteen. I just have to go early to get things ready. But I'll okay. I don't. I'm fine. We've got some time. Okay, great. Yeah. Can you tell me about Chris Heilman? Oh, Chris. Chris Heilman. Okay. I, after COVID, I had to close my yoga studio. I couldn't go and I couldn't teach yoga. That's been such a part of my life. It was my business. Uh, luckily, I got help from the government during that time to save me some stress, but I had had the concussion with the post-concussions. I, anyway, I was suffering from anxiety, and I was seeing a therapist, uh, just a regular therapist who didn't know, and she called it mountain climbing, and it used to drive me nuts because I would tell her, I'm not a mountain climber. I'm a rock climber. It's a different sport. And then she'd say, oh, well, when you were mountain climbing, let's, you know, and she was doing me no good at all. And yeah, so then John had talked to Chris Heilman and he he said she had helped him a lot. And she's, I think, in Idaho or the Tetons area. You know, I'm not sure. Um, but he said that he wanted me to see her. So you book her for a certain number of weeks and and you pay her of course and believe me it was worth every penny and then some but she's a psychologist a trained psychologist she's a rock climber and a really solid good rock climber and she trains kids for comps okay she trains other athletes as well but this is kind of her specialty and i Started talking to her. I we instantly it was uh, you know like at first sight, and we <laughs> just really got it. We we communicated well, and so she started telling me things that I didn't know about, and bringing things up that I hadn't thought about, and she helped me so much that I can't even explain in words. I mean, one really huge thing that she helped me with was her bubble and you draw a circle and inside the bubble, you put things that you are in control of. And then outside the bubble, you put things that you are not in control of and bring it into the bubble, right? My, one of my big things was when I first started climbing again, it was traumatic for me. 
I know people see somebody my age and and they're like, mm, wow, what is she doing out here doing this? There's nobody else out there my age, as you know. But uh, particularly women, there might be some older men. But she said, I, I was having issues with um, people because when I was... Most of the time when I was climbing, um, there weren't people. And then when I was climbing into the 2000s at Smith, I would, we'd always go into the gorge because I loved the gorge. It was cracks, spectacular cracks. And there weren't so many people because if you couldn't leave five, ten cracks, forget about it, right? So I was okay with that. And now after all this time being off, it's like a big a, a big climbing gym. Uh, the whole crag is a climbing gym. There's squeeze jobs one after the other, and particularly at Owens River Gorge, as you might have noticed. And there's just and people have no space issues. Mm. Like one day we were climbing at Alabama Hills, and we were the only people out there in the whole freaking park. And a couple comes up and starts putting doing the route right next to us and that is that's way out of my comfort zone so i don't like it when my comfort zone doesn't include things that i think it should if that makes sense i think i should be able to expand my comfort zone so that i'm comfortable with a lot more things than i believe so she said those are the things outside your circle, your comfort zone. And one of them was other people. And through our time talking together, I have learned that I'm a pretty outgoing person anyway, but I would shrivel up when people came because I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to climb. I climb like shit. I can't, you know, when before like when I read when I read pointed Wortley's Revenge, there was a group of people down there watching me because they were so impressed with me. And that sounds really arrogant, but I was used to that at Smith. I was kind of known at Smith. And I was really squeamish about going out and climbing around other people. So she taught me to just approach them first, you know, mm. just when people come up, I'll say, hi, how are you doing? And I'm just myself. And I say, where are you from? You know, and climbers will just react to that. Climbers are social beings, I think. And particularly with other climbers, right? I mean, you've got that common denominator. And that works so great for me. My friend Jen asked John, she said to John, because I went running over to somebody had a baby and I go nuts when I see babies, <laughs> little <laughs> kids, because I love them. And my friend said to John, Carol's really outgoing and friendly, isn't she? And John said, she's trying. He <laughs> <laughs> was right. At first I had to try, but now it's, and I don't have that anymore. Mm. I can even go to Owens River Gorge now, you know? So, 
just an example, one small example of how she helped me. So I did want to throw that, you know, shout out to her. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I think she's on, I think she's on sabbatical right now to hang out with her young son, seven or eight years old right now, but she wants, she's going back and she's just taking a little break. Well, I will definitely find Chris and put her contact in where, you, where people can find her in the show notes. You need to interview her. I'd love to. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you'd love her. I mean, she's great. She's just great. <laughs> so yeah, that would be great. Just to clarify that. So that was, you, you reached out to her and worked with her when you were trying to come months. back. When I was trying to come back and this was when I was still having trouble sleeping. And that was the final key that got me that got me feeling 20 years younger was when I was finally able to get a good night's sleep. Mm. And that was working with sleep therapists. And it's it's a long story, but I when I go to sleep now, I sleep and I sleep all night and I sleep well. I have lots of deep sleep. You know, if you have a Fitbit or anything, you can check your sleep out, how much deep, how much REM, how much, and I get an over an hour of deep sleep every night. And most people, as they get older, they're lucky to get five minutes or, you know. Wow. So sleeping is incredibly important. Sleeping, eating, just, the, I mean, the basics, you know, and I have a, uh, my fitness pal or some, it's an app for food that records your food. You can scan the food. It's not a big deal. You know, do you have one? Um, I've used this. Yeah, I've used it. Mm-hmm. Because climbers don't get enough protein mm. because you're working so hard and demanding so much of your body. And at my age, um, God, I hate saying that because it makes me sound like my grandma, but <laughs> I have become my grandma. <laughs> no, I'm not anything like her. <laughs> climbed out of bed every morning and sat in a chair, you know. Yeah. But that was that generation. Uh, can, I, can I ask you something that actually, yeah, that actually brings to mind a question that I wanted to ask you earlier? You're talking about uh, yoga is like the fountain of youth. Uh, for your body and, you know, keeping things mobile and moving and taking 20 or 30 years off your life through that. But you're also just sharp as a tack. Like you're so mentally sharp. And I wonder, like, was your grandmother like that? Or do you credit how you spend your time and climbing and these these other things to um, the state of your your mind and your your intelligence that's the same as it's always been? Like, is there anything else oh, that you try to do? that's really sweet. I think I used to be a lot smarter, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> but my brother-in-law is an ex. Uh, he's a retired neurosurgeon who has a, a master's degree in epidemiology from Yale. Plus, is neuro- obviously a genius guy. And my sister said that he he gets really depressed because he this words he can't. He's three years older than me words slip his mind and you know you just feel like you're losing it I think I had a lot to start with I was always a good student and all that stuff like I said but he I tell her he had this massive brain to start with so if he loses a little bit of it 
The only time I really noticed that uh, is my retention. Uh, reading retention is not mm. what it used to be. And it could be just not being in school and not practicing because I'll read things and then I'll want to quote them. And uh, it, you just can't remember all of it. But I think that if I took notes, that would help that. But mm. yeah, I think I'm, I've still got my wits about me. And I also think that has to do with continuing to try to learn new things, to push yourself, to do, to do more, to do things outside of your comfort zone. And that's what I told my granddaughter when she went to the island to go diving. Uh, I said, you know, life begins, and I didn't make this up, life begins outside your comfort zone. Because she said she was scared to go down mm. there by herself. She's 18, you know. And she loved that. And she said, that's great. I, that gave me the, the impetus to go for it. And she's having a blast down there, you know, and that's, that's what happens. People are afraid to get outside of that perceived bubble that they're in the comfort zone. It used to be climbing was considered radical an extreme sport. I remember that. Not anymore. It's getting more and more mainstream, <laughs> mm -hmm. particularly with Olympics. You know, but I I love Adamandra and I love Alex Honnold and I love what those guys do. And Free Solo was an amazing movie. And I was most impressed. The whole movie, you know what really impressed me the most? When he was on that fallen tree in standing there in tree pose. <laughs> <laughs> of course holy yeah. mackerel have you ever tried that <laughs> i would fall off of that thing so fast i mean that takes the just an amazing proprioceptive well it was the amygdala they said that he his amygdala was clear and clean where ours is the rest of us are more cluttered to put it basically in a very basic terms oh uh, yeah, so I I think it's great. I love those guys. I love all those movies they're making now. Uh, yeah, and I don't even know the names of the, I am so embarrassed, the, the women there, because a lot of them are, are from Italy and Spain and other countries. And I don't know about you, but I find it challenging to remember foreign names. Mm -hmm. I'm an ace at remembering american names because <laughs> i'll go into a studio and there'll be 40 people there and i know their names wow because i learn them when they come in uh and that's just training that's what actors do mm. you know they they train them they train their brains do you have a technique yeah. for that for trying to remember your people's brain? Yeah, for, well, specifically for remembering people's names. That's really interesting. Oh, well, yeah, I have a little trick that I use. But some course that I took in school about memory games, um, I would meet them, I would say their name, and then I would associate them with something. Like a girl named Jenny comes in and she's got curly red hair. And I, I think of... Orphan Annie, or, you know, that's a silly, but just a silly 
thing. It has to be a silly thing that makes no sense to anyone, but it triggers your brain to remember. And if you practice it, and that's the that's the key to life. <laughs> 90, 80% of life is showing up. That's what Woody mm. Allen said, and that's what I tell my students. Just get to the mat. Once you're there, you're fine, right? Showing up and just like contacting you about the, I texted you, I guess, about this podcast because I listened to podcasts and I realized that what you're so prepared for everything. You're, the comments on your, on your podcast, you know, where you rate podcasts, mm-hmm. tell it all. You wow, ask, thank you. You do research, you study, you know the person, you ask uh, open-ended questions, you, yeah, and you're interested, you're genuinely interested in people and their stories. And, and it's great, you know, it's great when a 32-year-old guy can hang out and talk for over two hours with a 77-year-old woman. <laughs> But I had a friend in Ben, Chip Miller. Chip Miller, I don't know. He was the he's the sales, the big grand fromage in sales there at Metolius. Mm-hmm. He was my best friend. He was thirty, and I was sixty, and we were best buddies. <laughs> and we went out and I we talked that. on the phone every day, and we went out and retro bolted uh, this climb called Hesitation Blues. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we put a bolt there where there was an old manky piton. Wow. And, yeah, it was great. <laughs> but, the, yeah, that's another thing that that I wanted to talk about was how people put you in a category. They put you in a box because you're a certain age or you're a certain color or you're a certain. That's the way we do. We compartmentalize people. And I was working, I was climbing Ring of Fire. Have you ever done that one? Yeah. It's only 11D. It's not, you know. But I was it's not on easy, it that's for sure. It's not easy. And I was working it with my, because I couldn't figure that crux move out. I did, though. But I was working with one of our guides, Andrew, and he was in his 20s. And there was a group of people on the little 5-7 that a lot of guide services are on that's to the climbers left, like right around going to Astros Pass. And there was a group of people there and I heard this comment, wow, she's doing really good for her age. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute. (laughs) I think I'm kind of doing good for any age. I mean, it's a level (laughs) D and I was leading it. I mean, you know, they want to, they want to categorize you. And that's something that I had mentioned to you. And I think in my notes that, that people do that, they like to do that. And I guess they always will. And uh, this is one of my favorite stories of that. My youngest daughter was 12 or so, and she was spending the night with a friend and she was telling the them, the family at dinner, she told the mom that her mom was a rock climber. And the mom said, 
isn't she a little old for that? I was 43. <laughs> and my daughter said, oh, I guess not because she does it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay. But, and then I used to get comments at Seneca when I was climbing. There were these hecklers next to us. And I heard one of them say something about menopause hotel or something. I was not in menopause. I was 42 or three years old, you know, and that kind of comment. And like this one guy, because everybody warms up on magic light at Smith and I had magic light dialed in and I climbed it. And then some, somebody said that this guy's name was Larry something. Larry, you're going to climb magic light. And he said, no, a 50 year old woman just climbed it. Why would I want to climb it? He was joking. Mm. I thought it was cruel. I just, uh, you know, uh, for me, I thought it was cruel. Maybe somebody else might've been able to laugh it off, but I'm kind of sensitive uh, about a lot of things, not just, I'm sort of the opposite of Spock, uh, <laughs> overly sensitive. You have more than one feeling. I have more than one feeling. <laughs> I have way too many feelings. <laughs> well, th thank you for talking about that because it was it was so interesting to read that note in your message. Um, because immediately when I read the word ageism, it just kind of registered with me. It, it registered with me that of course that that's a thing. I just have that's a thing I've never spent any amount of time thinking about. Bingo. Yeah. Because we think about sexism, racism, all the isms, but ageism is still acceptable. Mm. Um, and it's joking, like uh, in the language when the word geezer and, you know, over the hill. And I got a birthday card from my sister's a school teacher and all the kids signed a birthday card for me and it. It said, you're 46. And you open it up and it said, over the hill. And today, 46 is not over the hill. I didn't think it was then, but apparently it was. And it was kids, so it didn't bother me. But still, they would, that was something. Um, ageism, like comments like, you're climbing at your age? That's ageism. Yes, I'm climbing at my age, period. You know, I just think people need to have a little more respect. Like in other countries, people have respect for their elders. Hmm. And here it's it's just really obvious as I've gotten older to observe the fact that it's a youth culture, youth-oriented. And once a woman particularly is over childbearing age, she doesn't exist. She doesn't, she's invisible. And I don't want to be invisible. I guess maybe that's part of my drive. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to be invisible. Why should I be? You know, I'm a human being and I'm out there giving and doing the best I can. And I just, just a little respect. I think your parents taught you well. You can <laughs> tell, you can tell when somebody has respect for their you're, I'm, if you have grandparents, great. I'm sure you respect them. And it's obvious in your language. 
And I, I was at Owens River Gorge, and we were camping at the mud pit, which I hate, by the way. And I was going down to the facilities, and I, this kid in a van, 20-something, stopped, and I was starting to walk across, and he said, come on, Grandma, I don't have all day. And that really just angered me. It made me sad for him, first of all. And it, it angered me because it just did. I mean, you'll find out one day, hopefully, if you're lucky enough to live a long life. And I hope you are. Well, that really is what is so fascinating about it. Because like the, the one ism that we still seem to accept and not push back on is one that all of us will be on the other side of. I mean, the only way that any of us yes. are going to escape it is through an early death, which none of us want. So no. it's like, just do the yeah. thought experiment. I mean, I'm, I hope to be 77 going on 78 someday. And you'll be young. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. hundred will be the limit then. I mean, whatever the limit is, it keeps getting pushed out. And yeah, you're not going to be black one day. You're not going to be a exactly. female one day. You're going to be old one day. So, you know, start preparing for it by showing a little respect for people who are already there because mm -hmm. they've lived. Carol, to wrap up, I want to read something that you sent me in the email that you sent me. So when you reached out, I asked you to send me some bullet points, some talking points, things like that. And I have a paragraph that I actually want to end with just to take us back to things we've already talked about but i just i just love this bit of writing from you um oh good i have it right here great i'll read it along with you because i want to know which one you're talking about well what do you think should i read it out loud or should you no you read it okay in the society yep mm -hmm. okay <laughs> yeah it's kind of true isn't it we're reading together okay carol wrote in this society, we believe getting old is a horrifying decline. It is to be feared and dreaded. We can continue to work and stay strong both physically and mentally throughout life, or we can give up and listen to the naysayers. The older we get, the harder we have to work. If we want to keep our passions alive, we have to either feed that passion, or we can give up and listen to the naysayers. I'll be 78 this year, and I'm psyched to see what I can do. No limits. I agree 100% with that. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Carol, it's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you. Oh. Um, I really enjoyed this. I've learned so much. Um, oh, my goodness. I'm so glad. Yeah. How long have we been talking? A long time. Yeah, I thought I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, I feel that way, too. I wish you could come to my class tonight. <laughs> Maybe one of these days. I love Bishop. Um, I, I don't know when I'll be back, but I will be back, certainly, and be really fun to connect oh, with you please. in person. That would be incredible. I mean, we have a guest room. You're welcome here anytime you want. Anybody, honestly, climbers, I mean, I hate to post this to your <laughs> one million plus people, but, but we have, we're located at the most incredible place, and we love climbers and, uh, you know, my mi casa es su casa, mm. as they say in Spanish. There we go. My house is so come on down. <laughs> okay. You're so sweet. Um, 
thank you. Thank you for a really interesting and thoughtful and just wonderful conversation. Oh, I've, I've enjoyed every so minute of it. Fun. Um, hope to do it again one of these days. I would love to do a follow-up, like you said, because I'm just getting started now. I'm only working my way up. I'm only in tens now, but I plan to keep going up in the numbers. <laughs> Back up the grade scale. All right. Up the grade scale. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go down it, right? I want <laughs> I won't yep. be up there where you are, but I'll be high enough for me. <laughs> and you're welcome, Stephen. And it's been a pleasure. You're just an amazing person. And I really appreciate you. And it's been a pleasure. My honor, actually. Well, thank you. The pleasure the pleasure is mine. I, um, I almost feel like I've cheated in life getting the opportunity to put myself in so many other people's shoes by doing this, by really I mean, and I really hope that it um, that it can have the type of impact on other people that it's had on me to be able to yes. to to learn about each individual's story because you can't put someone in a group when you learn how complex they are and how many different sides of them they they are and how mm-hmm. you know how many chapters they've had in their own life story. I just I just absolutely love it, and I think it's. Um, I think stories and people's stories is like the antidote to so much of our, to so much of what divides us. Um, Right. Yeah. And you're, I mean, you, the thing is that you listen and you hear what I'm saying and you're willing to sit and talk to a 77 year old woman for all this time. Excited to. Yeah. Excited to even. And uh, I think a lot of, I don't know, but maybe some youngsters in listening to this are going, well, you know, I don't want to listen to this old lady talk about, climbing. but climbers are climbers. I'm telling you kids, no matter how old you get, you're still a climber. And yeah, I, I just love it that you absorb what I have said. And I wish that everyone would learn that skill mm. or just be aware of it. It's there. Just be aware of it and listen to people who are different than you are. Hmm. Thank you again, Carol. You're so welcome. <laughs> Thanks you have everyone. A, uh, smoke detector over your head. Sorry. And it looks like a halo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at this. Look at this. Here we go. It's actually a light. Oh my God. <laughs> I've been, uh, Okay. Converted me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank okay. you for this conversation. Um, thanks to everyone for tuning in. I will be sure to share uh, the article following the sun that Carol wrote so many years ago. Uh, we'll find that and we'll find a way to share it with you guys as well as the photos, anything else we talked about in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. But really appreciate you all for listening. Appreciate you, Carol, so much. And thank you guys. We'll see you next time. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. We're done. Okay. That was so cool. (laughs) Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carol as much as I did. If you want to read the article that she wrote in Rock and Ice many years ago, I link to that in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for this podcast. I also link to other related podcasts that I think you guys would enjoy. If you enjoyed this conversation, one that comes to mind is episode 34 with Roger Volkman. That's an episode that I published 
in the first year of this podcast. It hasn't gotten a ton of listens, but if you loved this conversation, I think you would love that one as well. And you should definitely go check it out. Again, that's episode 34 with Roger Volkman. I also linked to Dr. Chris Heilman's website and email if you want to connect with Dr. Chris Heilman about mental coaching and mindset coaching. And I also linked to Carol's personal Instagram and her yoga Instagram in the show notes. Everything is at thenuggetclimbing.com. Before you go, don't forget to check out Athletic Greens. I think of this stuff as all-in-one nutritional insurance when I'm on the road. I love it. It's refreshing. It tastes good. I had some today. And if you want to try it out, head over to athleticgreens.com slash nugget because Athletic Greens is giving you guys a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Also, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. Download it for free. Try it out. And if you love it, consider signing up for Crimped Plus to unlock the entire catalog of workouts, build your own custom training plans, and unlock skill templates that will help you turn those weaknesses into strengths. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store for iOS or Android. And finally, don't forget to check out PhysiVantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support the tendons and ligaments in my fingers, and it helps. PhysiVantage sources the highest quality ingredients for all their products, so you can't go wrong. And if you use code NUGGET15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off your next order. And that's it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you for listening to the very end. Much love to all of you. I hope you have an amazing week. And we'll see you next time.